Welcome to Soundpost, a podcast dedicated to exploring the meaning of orchestral music in today's world through the lives of its leading artists. I'm Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I'm Raul Gomez. And our guest today is Fernando Mesa, a fellow Costa Rican musician. Fernando, great to have you. How's it going? Thank you. Uh, it's it's going great, Raul. It's, it's nice to hear your voice and Carlos Miguel, yours as well. I want to dive right into something. Of course, we're in the middle of uh, you know COVID-19, uh, social isolation and all of that. And you, Fernando, have been doing projects online, collaborating with uh, musicians in other countries. But you haven't been doing this just now because of the current situation. You have been doing this for a long time. You've been creating bridges, specifically in the percussion world, but, but in music in general, uh, between people from different places and different cultures. Well, yes. I mean, I, I guess I have been doing that for, for a number of years in different ways. I've, I've never done it necessarily, you know, in, in this format, you know, in the virtual world. But it's been, it's been really interesting, you know, this, I, 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 we just finished doing a, a video uh, collaboration between my students here at the University of Minnesota and the percussion students at the University of Costa Rica as well as the you know professional percussion ensemble, the Costa Rica UNED percussion ensemble. And we also had a guest from the Cirque du Soleil, one of the percussionists from Cirque du Soleil from Venezuela, mm-hmm. Gilmer Vivas, uh, who participated in the project. And um, yeah, it was, a great, it was a great project. The idea originally was just to do a little improvisation with, with kitchen utensils, you know, <laughs> for everybody to get into the kitchen and do an improvisation with kitchen utensils. That was my original idea. And then one of my students here at the at the university, McKenna Tolfa, decided she was going to write a piece for for this project. And then she wrote this terrific piece. And then everybody latched onto that, and the project just grew from there and kind of snowballed into into the finished product that is now on, you know online. And it's been it was really great, really innovative, really creative, and really fun project. Fernando, you have been a coach for the Orchestra of the Americas for a number of years. And as a coach, you work with percussionists from many different countries. And the world of percussion is so fascinating to me <laughs> because it's so wide and it's so big. And uh, of course, uh, Carlos Miguel gets to program music <laughs> that will feature your percussionists. And I'll share that one of my all-time favorite things to ever have played years ago as a musician with the orchestra is La Noche de los Mayas. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I knew, and I knew you were going to say that. Uh, it's such a great piece. Carlos, do you, I mean, it, it must feel like such a luxury to know that you can program repertoire for this orchestra knowing that you're going to have a solid percussion section and a solid coach. A solid percussion and a solid coach or an incredibly kick... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god where do i start raul with your question and with fernando here uh let me just say that i i don't i don't know anyone who is able to do what fernando does uh with these amazing uh young musicians he 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 takes them from uh whatever they come and makes them uh better musicians, funner musicians, and makes them do things that they could not suspect they do. They do So over the years, and Fernando has been with us for many, many, many years, and we have many, many stories. Many. 40 minutes. 
is not something that we can deal with as far as the number of stories we have. But, you know, Fernando not only teaches them to play the most uh, uh, refined kind of works, such as we've done, you know, Daphnis and Chloe and every, every single piece from the repertoire, Bolero, uh, but he teaches them things that are extraordinary. Uh, and he teaches them how, for example, how to play a real mambo in, in West Side Story versus what's written on paper. And m maybe this is criminal that we're saying here, but it is very different, very different to play percussion uh, as you learn it in front of a piece of paper versus knowing, like Fernando knows better than anyone, what the real thing sounds like. And... I'm, I always, this is one of my obsessions and I, every single audition that I have, a, per, a percussion audition, I always say the same thing. It's how is it possible that today we are actually asking for people to play um, timpani, bass drum, uh, da, 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 triangle, da, da, but we don't incorporate in that same audition Guido, Pandero, and by Pandero, I don't mean a Carnival Overture of Dvorak. I mean Brazilian Pandero for my Brazilian friend. Or even a Venezuelan instrument, you know, maracas or something. And Fernando incorporates the, the knowledge of the traditional percussion instruments with the knowledge of the percussion instruments that you can see in our countries, which is in South America and Central America, in, in Africa. So when he talks about putting together a video with kitchen utensils, utensils, it makes sense to me because I've seen him do this for almost 20 years. I've seen him put together concerts where the musicians play on a table, something that's called table music. Um, for those of you who don't know anything about percussion, it's fine. You're actually enjoying this more than the rest. Uh, but th that means that nobody is playing any musical instruments. All that you are seeing is an empty table with hands doing different motions. That's also music. Or to make music with spoons or to make music with whatever. And one thing which is so important about the Youth Orchestra of the, of, of Orchestra of the Americas over the years is how much we've learned about things like uh, how different it is to play percussion in Dominican Republic versus Brazil, versus Venezuela, versus Mexico, versus Canada, versus the U.S. So if I can say something about Fernando and his teaching style is that he uh, incorporates I'm, I'm going to say a word in Spanish, amalgama. He amalgamates. I don't even know if it exists in, 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 in English. <laughs> All of this knowledge, okay? So that suddenly, instead of playing West Side Story with the paper, these musicians end up playing West Side Story with the paper, but sounding like what Bernstein imagined West Side Story to be, which is an imitation of everyday life. And this is very important because to me, percussion has to have sabor, flavor, 
Chilito, uh, Vida. Uh, and if it doesn't, it's kind of meaningless. I mean, it's just absolutely fine to play the right thing at the right moment. But it's way, way, way finer to actually make a cumbia sound like a cumbia, a mambo sound like a mambo. And that is easier said than done. That you have to experience it to teach it. So my question to you, Fernando, and it's one that I've never asked you, is how do you teach people to play these rhythms like cumbia, like mambo? Did you learn them when you were growing up? Have you learned them through life? Are you like constantly going to salsa clubs and learning how these people do it? How is it? Where did you learn this? Well, let's see. That's that's it's interesting. I I actually didn't grow up playing those particular, you know, styles of music. Of course, you know, growing up in Costa Rica, uh the Latin rhythms are are pervasive, you know, in society. You know, you hear them when you when you get them on board a, a, a public transportation bus, for example, and you know the driver just has the radio on playing salsa or whatever, and uh, and you go to friends' houses and you know you have a party and there's Latin music playing and and so on and so forth. So you know those those rhythms are like I said in society they just are there and you listen to them as as part of that society. But I actually didn't grow up in that tradition. You know when I started in music, I started in the orchestral tradition. From the time I was nine years old until I was 17 and I left Costa Rica to come to the U.S. But uh, it wasn't really until after I came to the U.S. Uh, and maybe it was a bit of the, uh, of the homesickness factor in there that made me realize how rich that environment really is in terms of percussion and, and rhythms. Uh, and that's when I started to appreciate all of those rhythms and started to get interested in, in studying them and learning more about them. Um, so, you know, I just experimented with them, started, started practicing, you know, hand drums and other things and listening to more Latin music, etc. And it's been just a kind of a lifelong pursuit. Um, it's, and it's not necessarily something that I do all the time, but, uh, but it's certainly something that I've, that I've wanted to incorporate into my, into my learning process, to be sure. I've heard you, Fernando, I've heard you speak about complete musicianship mm. right so is, is this mm. what you mean yes indeed is is part of that you know it is certainly in the world of percussion you know carlos was saying earlier you know it really is is so vast and especially you know if 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 you're an orchestral percussionist today you are no longer playing the orchestral instruments on alone you know as you know 40 years ago yes you could play the snare drum and the cymbals in the bass drum, and you could you could have made a, an orchestral career as a percussionist, but that is no longer the case. You know, composers have placed such huge demands on percussionists that uh, that they you know require of us to do you know just a, in, in, an incredible amount of things. You know, to very vers to be very versatile playing all kinds of mallet instruments. You know, marimba, vibraphone, xylophone, etc. Uh, to be very versatile playing a bunch of um, traditional instruments you know like carlos was referring to you know instruments from latin america from south america from uh from other cultures and uh the the demands are so great right now that in order to make it out there you have to be very complete very well-rounded 
and have a, a bunch of experiences um, outside of the tradition or what used to be the traditional orchestral uh, life as a percussionist. You know, nowadays the orchestras have, you know, pops series. They have, they're doing a lot of movies, for example, you know, um, they are, you know, they're doing family concerts and educational concerts, etc. And for each one of these um, kind of non-orchestral non repertoire uh, music, percussionists have a very um, vital role. So, you, you know, you are going to be called to play congas and, and timbales and bongo of Latin music and, and pandeiro and, you know, taiko drums and all kinds of other, you know, things. So you have to you have to incorporate all of that uh, into your training. I think just the the sheer amount of of instruments and the and the kind of writing that is that is happening today by composers is is placing um, those kinds of demands on the on the performers to be more showy um, or percussion sections to be somehow you know to be able to show off a little bit more of of what they do. Um, you know, if you if you go to a concert today, you know, and, and there's a piece written by a contemporary composer who has written for just all kinds of instruments. You know, the first thing that you see, of course, as an audience member is you walk in and, and you see a stage that is just full of percussion equipment in the back. And that in and of itself is, you know, it's a is a visual, you know, the st stimulus visually is, is, is very strong. Uh, there are some logistical things, of course, involved with all of this, Carlos, that, you know, we have instruments that are very large and all of that. And if we start placing them, in, you know, more in, in the front, is it, it takes over the, the orchestra. And uh, so, you know, I mean, you know this well, it's an issue of balance also in the end and all that. Uh, but, I, but I do think that by virtue of, of composers writing and really taking advantage of the possibilities that percussion has to offer today with all the, you know, you know, with all the uh, different instruments and the and the techniques that are in place now, that are very sophisticated and, and really quite quite amaz amazing, you know, for musical results. I think there's so much innovation that's driven by percussion and and contemporary music. And Fernando, I wanted to ask you about something that I think sort of brings together the past and the future, and the world of percussion and orchestral music, and this is the marimba. Uh -huh. Okay, because I know you, you've you've been doing some work, and you've also collaborated with a maker mm -hmm. in Costa Rica, and you've been bringing this instrument to to current percussion students, and in a way, it's kind of a throwback because we have had it for a long time in our in our countries, right? But mm -hmm. for a lot of the world, mm -hmm. this is something that's new. So, will you talk about your your what you have found and what you're doing in that? Area. Sure. Yeah, the you know the marimba has become a, a really prominent instrument in the in the percussion world, and um, of course you know the marimba can date back all the way to you know its its origins in in Africa, you know generations ago. Uh, the instrument, of course, as we know it today, you know I, I refer to it as a concert marimba. You know the instrument that you see when you go to a symphony orchestra concert, for example, and you see a marimba on stage, it'll be a concert marimba. The instrument that, that we have in Costa Rica and, and in Guatemala also, by the way, in both countries, uh, the marimba is the national instrument, you know, by, by legislative, you know, uh, agreement. Uh, but this tradition, you know, exists, of course, in, in different places in the southern part of Mexico. Of course, Carlos Miguel, you're very aware of that. You know, in Chiapas, the, the marimba in Chiapas and, um, 
in um, other places is, is really strong. But that's the, the traditional marimba, or what I refer to as traditional marimba, or folk marimba. Uh, and it's an instrument with a very different sound than the, than the concert marimba, because the traditional marimba has a buzzing characteristic to it that the concert marimba does not. But uh, yeah, the marimba is, is an instrument I've been involved with for a long time and, and have tried to you know, um, bring it to the foreground as, as, as much as possible. It's, it's really an instrument that has um, created a whole new wave of amazing artists, soloists. Um, and um, I remember back in, in 2010, in fact, I, am, I, am, I was just posting something on Facebook about this. Because uh, it's exactly as we're speaking right now, it's been 10 years since I organized this festival. This, uh, I organized a, the Marimba 2010 International Festival and Conference. Um, and uh, this event um, brought together 50 plus of the world's most renowned uh, marimbists. And, and it was quite, quite, a, quite an ordeal, of course, for me to undertake because it took me three years to put that thing together. Um, but uh, we, you know, we were able to get all the artistic organizations in the Twin Cities here of Minneapolis and St. Paul to participate, you know, Minnesota Orchestra, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, a professional choir, vocal lessons, uh, and, a, and a bunch of the presenters in town. And uh, so it was, it was a pretty amazing uh, event. But the marimba has, you know, has been steadily gaining ground um, since, you know, since the 20s uh, in this country. And um, there, there are some really incredible musicians out there uh, performing. Um, I know Carlos Miguel has conducted some marimba concerti in the past. Uh, in fact, I was just speaking with uh, Naoko Takada last night with my students. We had a, a, a meeting, a virtual meeting with her. And um, I know that you had worked with her a while back. And, uh, but, you know, like Naoko, there are many, many marimbas out there doing some really incredible things. You know, uh, talking about that, it, uh, and nothing to do with orchestral music, but when when my, my my wife and I are about to celebrate our twenty second wedding anniversary in two days, which is it's it's nice. But as 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 I remember, our wedding our wedding was in the state of Veracruz, mm -hmm. in a tropical jungle, in a opening right in front of a river, and being a musician, you would have imagined that. You know, maybe we would have had a, an orchestra or something. And actually what we had is a traditional Mexican marimba hey. from the south of Mexico, hey. the Nandayapa family. Oh, yes. Of course. Um, and so uh, if, if you are from, from Mexico, uh, especially if you are from south of Mexico, you know this very esteemed family. But it, 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 it's a different experience because... Instead of one person playing marimba, uh, the, this had, uh, you know, the old Mr. Nandayapa, who still since then passed, and his sons playing. So I don't remember if it's four or five people, mm -hmm. but it's five people or four people playing on the marimba. Repertoire that can go from anything from the most popular to the most symphonic. And in a wedding, when people eat, well, most people are actually talking and the music is in the background. Well, when they started playing pieces like Wapango or other pieces, traditional um, sones or, or pieces from Oaxaca and from Chiapas, 
there was complete and total silence, <laughs> meaning people were enjoying the, the, the marimba. I think this is important to realize because um, the marimba is an instrument. Well, of course, you know better than me that there's a discussion whether it starts in Central America or in or in Africa or, or I don't know where. But it really doesn't matter. The, what I think what matters is how important it is for some cultures. Uh, but that has made that leap between being an instrument that is autochthonous to some cultures, but that that is necessary in orchestral music. Um, and little by little, as you say, I see that happening with other instruments. But there are instruments still in the percussion world where there are pieces where if you don't have a person with a certain ability, that piece will simply not work. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll give you an example. And maybe I'll give this example with cooking. Uh, because everybody relates to cooking and everybody relates to eating, okay? Uh, if, if you, even if you cannot cook, you know the difference between good and bad food. And if you grew up liking, yeah, um, I don't know, enchiladas, okay? And that, uh, you know, since I know that your mom um, uh, is, is, is Mexican, that's why I, I chose enchiladas. But enchiladas and the, the, the sauce has a flavor that you know you like, but you, you, can't, you can't tell what it is, okay? But you like your mother's enchiladas, and that's what's in your memory, and that's what you want. Okay, so the same thing happens about with music. There are certain pieces, <laughs> thinking about like something like Santa Cruz de Pacairigua, um, yeah, Venezuelan piece. It has a um, maracas part, Venezuelan maracas part, oh, yeah. that if I give to somebody in Denmark, and I'm assuming somebody in Denmark could play it, but it's going to sound different, and I'm going to have enchilada problem. <laughs> and, and, and what is it that I call enchilada problem? I'm, I'm, I'm saying, okay, it'll, it, it'll, it'll taste good. It'll taste good. It'll be, it'll be better than having borscht, okay, for me. But it's still not what I have in my mind sure what i have in my mind is the time when i did it and that the person who was playing maracas was venezuelan or was colombian and had maracas in the dna since they were little because they played maracas in the parties and all of that and then when they hear that moment in that piece they give me the sound we've had over 20 sure. years so yeah. many experiences and of this, you know, everywhere we go, in Brazil, in Costa Rica, in Mexico, everywhere we go. Yeah, but yeah. this is fascinating about music, yet at the same time it's a little bit sad because the, it means that it, it is almost impossible to play the piece um, in Minnesota unless you have Fernando Mesa who can play that part uh, because you never have enough rehearsals to work out the things that are natural to the piece. Uh, and this is something I be sure. grapple all the time. So I'm very appreciative of musicians like you 
because I, I see you in the back of the orchestra teaching how to play a certain instrument. And by the end of the summer, they almost sound Venezuelan. They almost sound Brazilian. Of course, sometimes they even get to sound as good as if they had learned it in the streets or in the beach of Rio de Janeiro. But can you, do you think it's possible for somebody as old as me to learn to play pandero as if I had learned it in the, in the beach of Rio de Janeiro? Is it feasible? Uh, uh, no and yes. And I, will, and I will not say yes and no. I say no and yes. Okay, good. It's, thank you. Because, uh, yeah, because, uh, you know, there is definitely something, you know, you, 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 you hit it right on the nose when you say DNA, you know. There is something where you, where you breathe and live that tradition from the time you were born that you simply cannot teach to, to, to someone. It's just, it's just unteachable. It's just the, a certain naturalness that comes from, you know, living it that, that nobody can get unless you yourself live through it. Um, and that's why I say no. But I also <laughs> say yes, because yes, it is possible, of course. I, I do believe that anyone, that, anyone who, who applies himself or herself to the process can learn anything, really. Um, are are you going to sound as good as that one you know seven year old kid who is all day playing pandero? Maybe maybe not you know, but but you you know you'll you'll go through it and you'll enjoy it and you'll learn it. Um, so yeah, there there are many of course many of these traditions that, uh, and this is part of the problem, the intrinsically built in problem for percussionists is that now we are being asked to play maracas like a Venezuelan maraca player. <laughs> we are being asked to play pandeiro like a pan Brazilian pandeiro player. We are asked to play, you know, all of these things as though we have that experience. Um, and, and not everybody does, obviously, and not, not anyone can. Mm. Uh, there are many people that devote themselves to the study of all these, you know, traditions and, and, you know, practice a lot and become very good at it. But that takes, you know, a particular kind of study. Um, and orchestral players really are not necessarily devoting themselves to studying maracas for the most part, you know. And there are people that have done it, you know, mostly as a result of having lived in a country playing with an orchestra. For example, you know, I have a colleague here in Minnesota who lived in Venezuela, um, my good friend Jason Arkis. And he lived in Venezuela and, of course, you know, uh, experienced that culture. So if he had to play a maraca part, he probably could spend some time doing that. Uh, and, and there, you know, that kind of situation is possible for, for some orchestral players who have lived abroad and, and, and learned from that culture. But it is very difficult, you know, when you ask someone to play. For example, you know, I remember just a couple of years ago when, when we played in the Orchestra of the Americas, when um, we played Gabriela Montero's Piano Concerto, <laughs> that piece has a very detailed and difficult maraca part. And of course, you know, we were lucky to have a, a Venezuelan superstar of the, of the Maracas, you know, in, in, in that year. Uh, and so... <laughs> it may be a little trickier to find somebody with that particular skill set to, to execute a part like that. So, yeah, there, there are many of these traditions that, are, that have come into our realm of percussion that we have to contend with today 
and and it is very tricky you know for for all of us percussionists because there there are far too many and, and not enough time basically on the day for us to it, it reminds me of, of speaking a second language with an accent mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i mean I, mm -hmm. I've, i've you know i've lived in the united states for 15 years and you, you've lived here longer you know and mm -hmm. we speak english i guess well enough to be understood but you know we have an accent and that accent isn't mm -hmm. going anywhere you know so it kind of reminds right. me of that you know if i were to if i moved to Holland and you know right now and live there for five years I'll probably get pretty good at, at Dutch but I'm gonna have a very thick accent sure um, sure you've been teaching for how long I, I've been teaching since I was 12 really because you know after I started when I was nine my teacher after three years put me right to teach the beginners you know but you know teaching in college at the at the college university level um, Well, let's see, since 1989. Your students who graduate and move on to work professionally in music, do you see a change in what specific professional activities they're doing after graduation 20 years ago compared to now? In, in, in one way, I see kind of some of the same trend, so to speak, because even 20 years ago, students were looking for a variety of things in the same way that they are looking for a variety of things today. Um, so, you know, my students, for example, at the university level, each one of them has a different goal, you know, that they want to achieve. You know, one of them might want to be a marimba soloist. Another one might want to be a contemporary music artist. Another one might want to be a multiple percussion soloist. Another one might want to be an orchestral player. Another one might want to be more of an, you know, um, ethnic percussion or world percussion uh, expert and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. There are many, many, you know, somebody else might want to be a jazz vibraphone player. Somebody might want to be a drum set jazz player, etc., etc. There are many, many different avenues and streets in percussion to travel on. And so that's why I'm saying, you know, it's, it's kind of the same in a way from 20 years, 30 years ago, because everybody had unique uh you know goals to their education uh if if you were asking you know if this was 50 years ago then i think it would be a little bit different because 50 years ago the uh, the the variety of opportunities for percussionists was for percussionists was more limited being that you know you could make a living being a musician in the percussion field by playing in an orchestra or teaching at a university and and that was kind of You know, it, and it, unless you, you know, you were a successful drummer, you know, somehow they could tour around with a band or something. Or if you lived in Hollywood and recorded for the, you know, music uh, for the um, movie industry or something like that. But um, nowadays, there are a lot more, a lot more opportunities for percussionists, many of which are uh, self-generated or created by the percussionists themselves in their own sense of entrepreneurial uh, spirit. So, you know, nowadays you see percussion groups, for example, like the Soul Percussion Group, which is a percussion quartet doing amazing things out there, um, that, you know, they all met when they were in, at school, in school together and decided they were going to try to pursue a, you know, a, a career as a percussion quartet. You know, think of that. You know, 50 years ago, that was not necessarily an option. First, because there was no repertoire for that. Um, and... Um, There were no, you know, the, things were not quite so interesting per se, you know, in terms of how they are today. Nowadays, you have hundreds and hundreds 
of composers uh, ready to, to write for a, for a group like Soul Percussion, for example, uh, or many others out there have, that have, you know, come into the scene uh, over the last, you know, three, you know, three decades or so. So there, there are many, many different streets, like I said, to travel on for percussionists. And um, yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time, certainly, to, to, to be a percussionist. And Carlos, can I, can I ask you this? In the course of your career uh, conducting some, some of the best orchestras around the world, how, do, do you see this sort of change compared to uh, players who are uh, more veterans of, of the profession? Yes and no, and I've also learned to never assume anything because I'll give you two examples. Um, the first time I conducted the um, um, the uh, NDR Hamburg, which is now the resident orchestra at uh, El Philharmonie, uh, I have to say that the the flavor was was being provided by a couple of Spanish percussionists, young young ones. And there's a lot of um, good Spanish percussionists in, in many of the fine European orchestras. And I would say that they are, they are providing some of that, let's say, missing flavor. But then you also assume some things that you, are, you should not. I'll give you an example. Uh, in, uh, I, was, I conducted a week in Naples, Florida, which is a fine orchestra in Florida. And part of the program was uh, Noche de los Mayas that you all know very well. And the program started with Lavals um, by Ravel. And I looked at the, you know, whenever I do La Noche de los Mayas, as you know, I travel with a truckload of my own instruments, which I've been collecting over years and I still collect. Um, and so in the first reading of La Noche de los Mayas, my first experience coming out on the stage, I see that they had given the Guido part to somebody that to me looked exactly like, ah, this is not going to be good. And why? Because we are wrongly assuming that older people don't have this. Okay. Well, It ended up that this person was Alan Abel, ah. <laughs> who is one of, the <laughs> one of the gods of percussion. And Alan Abel not only played the most amazing guido in La Noche de los Mayas, he also played bass drum in La Valse. And every one of those bass drum entrances, I get goosebumps right now. Right now I get, just by remembering. Now, I'm not saying that Mr. Abel is, a, is, is old. Uh, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying he doesn't look like the Guido player that I imagine would be able to play. Yet he was sensational in the Guido. And that thing that he did in Laval's makes me just remember it forever. So uh, there are so, so many examples that completely break the rules and break the mold that uh, I've learned never to assume anything. Uh, and uh, I, I have a little segue question for you, uh, Fernando, because uh, I think that mo most people who may be hearing this don't know Laval's and maybe don't know La Noche de los Mayas, but they do know the Lion King. <laughs> we all know the Lion King, okay? And we all know all those fantastic tunes. 
Yet the only person um, in this uh, in this uh, so, uh, sound post that was part of the Lion King from from the onset was you. I, if I understand correctly, you originated the percussion parts, and if we listen to the Lion King, you are on that recording. So can you tell us about that and how did that come about? I mean, how does a kid born in Costa Rica, living in Minnesota, um, teaching and one of the great teachers of percussion end up um, recording and originating the percussion parts for Lion King? Yeah, that's 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 a, a, a very fond memory, of course, for me, you know, being part of the original group of, of percussionists for Lion King. Um, and that was in 1995. Uh, the, the, the show actually um, was scheduled to come to Minneapolis for two months prior to going to Broadway. And um, two weeks before the show came to Minneapolis, uh, they, they actually let go of one of their percussionists and they decided to hire someone locally. Um, I had just actually gotten to, to Minneapolis a year and a half before that. I, I came in 93. The percussionists in Minneapolis already knew that that show was going to be coming, so everybody was kind of interested in in it because it was going to be a fun show. Knowing, of course, the movie and the theme being African, we expected that it would be a great show for percussion and all that. But, of course, you know, lo and behold, all the percussionists coming were the percussionists coming from New York. Um, so, but uh, the, the, the contractor told me that he had a list of, of, of a number of players that he had called and nobody could do the show. And uh, I, you know, I told him that 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 spoke really well to me of the environment of the Twin Cities in terms of percussions being busy, you know. But he told me that it was not an issue of percussions being busy and not being able to play because of scheduling conflicts, but because they told him they couldn't really do the show because of the demands of it. Um, and which is one thing that I always share with my students, you know, that uh, it was the versatility that I think allowed me to to play that show because. That show required a lot of different things, you know, playing orchestral percussion, playing hand drums, playing Latin percussion, improvising, writing, you know, parts. Um, and the, the five percussionists, uh, we all got together and kind of developed the grooves for each of the tunes. And uh, what allowed me to, to really play the show was the fact that I could navigate, uh, you know, in a, in a variety of uh, environments in percussion. I have a weird question now. Uh, do, do you know who Bad Bunny is? Yeah, yeah. I know who he is, yeah. And Raul, do you know who Bad Bunny is? Yeah. Okay, so, so if Bad Bunny came to Minneapolis and told you, I'm going, I, I, I want to do a Latin, uh, a Latin uh, musical, can you help me? What would you say? I'd say absolutely yes. <laughs> <Okay>. Cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean... I think I think we can we we all need to break barriers in music basically. So, you know, if somebody asks me that, I'll I'm I'm all for it. Well, that that it's a sound post that started talking about Ravel and ended ended talking about Bad Bunny um which probably <laughs> uh will make the young people understand us better. We can play Ravel, we can play Beethoven, but we can also speak eye to eye with Bad Bunny. <laughs> I want to thank Fernando Mesa for this amazing, amazing talk. Thank you. And I want to think that we can do another 
few ones because we have so many things to touch upon. But I want to thank you for this. I want to congratulate you for all your work. This is Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I'm Raul Gomez. Talk to you soon. Soundpost is a production of the Orchestra of the Americas Group with additional support provided by MYS Portland. Visit theoagroup.org forward slash soundpost to learn more.